my recitation of how Doth the Little was on point. But no, leave it to the intellectual caterpillars to learn me right. Why, of all the- Oh, oh, Jesse, it's you. So, would you know where I should go next? That depends a good deal on where you want to get to. Well, I don't think it matters too much, as long then as it I- it really doesn't matter which way you go. Well, I mean, you know, I want to get somewhere. Oh, you're sure to do that. If you only walk long enough. Um, right. So, what sort of people live about here? I mean, there's got to be somebody. I, I haven't seen anyone for miles. In that direction lives a hatter. And in that direction lives a March Hare. Visit either you like. They're both mad. I mean, I really don't want to go among mad people. Like, I've already met enough strange characters as it is. <laughs> oh, you can't help that. We're all mad here. I'm mad, you're mad. Oh. Wait, how do you know I'm mad? You must be. Or you wouldn't have come here. Oh no, wait! Please wait! I... Oh, I wanted to ask him if they play any Gnarls Barkley down here. Oh well. Oh, hello everyone! <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of Disney Real to Real, a deep, deep, deep delve into the Disney animated canon. This month, we are doing something... A little bit different. <laughs> we are covering sequence 7.5 of Walt Disney's Alice in Wonderland from 1951. Basic production credits include direction by Clyde Geronimi, with assistance by Ted Saburn, layouts designed by Charles Philippi, and Don Lusk and Mark Davis dividing up the task of animating our Alice. Voiced by Catherine Beaumont, of course. <laughs> Without further ado... Yeah, let's let's just get into it. Sequence seven point five. After several attempts to understand the whole grow and shrink thing with mushrooms, Alice finally gets back to her regular size and saves those shrooms for later. Unfortunately, she still has no clear direction or path to pursue the trick's rabbit down. Rather, she stumbles into the Tolji Wood and finds several signs posted on trees that lead to this way, that way, yonder, up, down, and even back. I personally find this fascinating because, though Alice has returned to some semblance of normalcy within herself, the world does nothing to support her journey. On the contrary, any and all directions are encouraged, but it's safe to assume all will lead to something tangential and irrelevant to her motivation. Speaking of which, a singing voice begins to reverberate through the woods, catching Alice's attention. It was brilliant, and the slithy toves did beguile and the gimbel in the way. Dull a mimsy, o'er the border goes, and the moonlight. 
This voice actually bounces around the upper tree branches, with various colors highlighting different branches. Now, the lyrics are complete gibberish. Some bullcrap about slithy toves gyring and gimbling in the wave. But the good news is, these words have meaning in the real world, for they are compounds based on Anglo-Saxon words from the Middle Ages. Who would have thought Lewis Carroll was just that kind of nerd? <laughs> but allow me to break this down. So, brillig, derived from the verb to brile or broil, refers to four in the afternoon, essentially dinner time. Slithy toves, they refer to the smooth and active badgers. Of course, we all were thinking that. But, uh, <laughs> gyre and gimbal, they mean to scratch and screw out holes in anything. Wabe comes from the verb to swab or soak, and refers to the side of a hill. Now, without breaking everything down, the modern English translation goes like this. It was evening, and the smooth active badgers were scratching and boring holes in the hillside. All unhappy were the parrots, and the grave turtles squeaked out. I'd break down the second half, but you see there's this man named Paul Hale of the Disney Story Origins podcast who beat me to this by like eight years, so I kind of want to push through. But all I'll add is that as esoteric as these words may be, it's as fun to know the true meaning as it is to come up with your own interpretation. My initial reading was probably something like this. Was brilliant and the slimy toads did guise and gave bells in their way. All whimsy where the burrow goes and the mom rats are gray. Now that's poetry. But Alice is more curious about the voice. She gets startled by a crescent grin chilling up in the tree. But the grin gains eyes, and gradually the body of a cat appears. A Cheshire cat, if you will. It's comparable to Lucifer, the cat from Cinderella, which is not coincidental. Ward Kimball, the animator behind Lucifer and the mice, designed this new character. But John Lounsbury, another member of Walt's Nine Old Men, did the majority of the animation. As we've discussed in earlier film adaptations of Alice, the Cheshire Cat is typically among the creepier facets. In 1933, we saw him as an unnerving, almost mechanical puppet. Disney's 1939 draft put him on the level of the Coachman from Pinocchio and Chernabog from Fantasia, with his big, bulging eyes, rows of jagged teeth, and sinister demeanor. In the 1943 draft, he became a sly, mischievous guide for Alice. But within that 1946 character outline, he was described as, quote, the shadow. He has a silky, sinister voice. The polite menace. He is human nature in the raw. Selfishly, ruthlessly bland. Unquote. There was also that brief period where they experimented with the design of his grin, dropping the crescent shape in favor of a diamond, before going back to the basics established in the novel. 
Now, casting suggestions reflected a similar incohesion in tone. They included Peter Lorre. May I ask you a question? You can ask your questions later. No, no. No! Right now! I want to ask my questions now, and, and I want to have my answers now. You hear? Charlie McCarthy, as voiced by Edgar Bergen. Charlie, I insist that you apologize to Mr. Martin. Yeah? Yes. After all, there's only one Dean Martin. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. They don't make men like Dean anymore. No. After they made him, they threw away the shovel. No, no, no. <laughs> they broke the mold. Broke the mold. Yeah, well... Claude Rains. Yes, I think you have. Yeah, you're entitled to 10% sales. Oh, damn it! you <laughs> Phil Silvers and Alan Jocelyn. But as story development continued, the cat retained his personality from the book as a chaotic, neutral character. What Disney implemented was delight in the cat's delirium. He's the most menacing creature Alice has come across yet, but there is some quality that wards off the suspicion of malice, at least at first. That could be due in large part to the man they selected to play the role, veteran Disney voice actor, Sterling Holloway. Lose something. Oh, 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 I mean, well, that is no. Well, I mean, I, I, I was just wondering. Oh, that's quite all right. <laughs> I just wanted to know which way I ought to go. Well, that depends, doesn't it, on just where you want to get to. Well, it really doesn't matter. Yeah. As long as well, I... Well, then it really doesn't matter which way you go. I have some friends who go that way, and then others go that way. But as for me, myself, personally, I always take the shortcut. Well, as long as I get somewhere... Oh, little girl, you're bound to do that. <laughs> Now, after showing off his shape-shifting abilities and teasing Alice some more, the cat advises her to meet either the Mad Hatter or March Hare. Naturally, she's not into that idea, you know, being a nimini-primini English girl and all that, but when the populace of Wonderland, this world Alice herself imagined up, is entirely mad, you really can't help that. Oh, my dear child, you can't help that. We're all mad here. Everybody's mad. You might have noticed that I am not quite myself. It was a brilliant slightly This is the ominous note the cat leaves her on, for he disappears, or rather, unravels, into thin air. This was Ward Kimball's one scene of animation on the character, and he had this to say in retrospect. Quote, I learned a big lesson. Actions that are supposed to be violently crazy are sometimes not as mad as more subtle, underplayed treatments, unquote. And maybe that's why we, as the audience, remember the upcoming sequence more fondly, because the lunacy will be far louder and in your face. And with his disappearance, Alice begins her trek toward the March Hare's house. She'll do fine, I'm sure. But the big question this encounter leaves us with is the meaning behind madness in Wonderland. This actually refers back to the historical context regarding Alice's adventures in Wonderland as a Victorian children's novel. You see, in England, there had been this growing fascination with the deranged. This interest was in stark contrast to the massive stigmatization toward loons in the previous century. 
Though asylums were popping up all over England as early as 1832, reformers like Harriet Matineau and John Connolly were calling out the poor mental health care and introducing non-physical restraint systems. Unfortunately, hundreds, if not thousands of people, got sent to these institutions with the hope for self-improvement before succumbing to various intense mental disorders and subsequent death. But the fascination continued on into literature, with works like Charles Dickens' 1841 novel, Barnaby Rudge, exploring the subject as a central, explicit theme. By the time we get to Lewis Carroll in 1864-65, madness is treated as something different, a positive, liberating force attributed to all denizens of Alice's dream world. This was not done to instill fear in every pearl-clutching parent, but rather to poke fun at a society that stigmatized creativity and individuality. So it would have been a living hell for me. And I bet you thought the rabbit hole stopped here. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. This actually opens up another can of worms. A conundrum among psychologists at the time was whether the abstract imagination, even that which belonged to a child, could lead to subsequent psychological disorders in adulthood. What hits home with me is how, according to writer Casey Deems in her 2017 essay, We're All Mad Here, chronic, unproductive daydreaming was thought to supersede productive work. And clearly, I'm killing two birds with one stone while doing this project. Gee whiz. But with this in mind, it is somewhat feasible for our contemporary edgelords to view Alice as insane. We even got a later Disney movie highlighting the matter called Alice Through the Looking Glass back in 2016. But hopefully, after sharing this context and insight, we can finally declare once and for all that Alice's Wonderland has no sinister agenda. It's simply the adult world, as she struggles to understand it, turned on its head. We've already seen how Victorian attitudes towards breeding, refinement, politics, literature, education, and adolescence literally interact with her here. And now, she's about to stumble upon another inverted, antiquated English pastime. An afternoon tea party! Care to learn how it goes? Tune in to a later installment of Disney Reel to Reel. Take us out of here, Jim Cummings! My head begins to jingle most every time I nod Cause obviously, quite obviously, I'm odd Each Christmas I go fishing to catch a Christmas cod Cause obviously, quite obviously, I'm odd When I was just a kitten, they said I'd be a gem But now that I'm a Cheshire cat, it's odd how odd I am Most cats have handsome whiskers, but me, I've got a beard. Cause obviously, quite obviously, I'm weird. Thank you all so much for coming with me on this 
journey experiment thing. <laughs> I had a really fun time. And I'm sure there's a lot of stuff I addressed in here that doesn't make much sense yet, but trust me, Alice is a movie that I really want to break down. I'm terribly passionate about it, so don't you worry, things will be explained in the long run. You can reach out to me at DisneyReel2Real at gmail.com or on Instagram at DizReel2RealPodcast. And of course, any other questions, comments, feedback will be greatly appreciated. Thanks for listening!